The Articulate Coven is the original, unofficial podcast and fan community for Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire and Anne Rice's Immortal Universe from AMC and AMC+. Welcome to The Articulate Coven, the unofficial fan podcast and community for Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles, The Vampire Lestat, and the forthcoming TV series. Uh, We are your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Ashley. And we are The Articulate Coven. Uh, First and foremost, Ashley, news. We've got news to discuss, which is not uh, all that often lately, but I have a feeling over the next months, uh, weeks and months, that news will accelerate. And pretty soon, we may be having whole episodes where it's just discussion of of news uh, related to the TV series instead of these um, deep dives and uh, backward-looking episodes that we've had so far talking about the uh, novel and the movies. Today, uh, our our main topic is going to be the Queen of the Damned film, Uh, but (laughs) we've got a showrunner. Or I should say, we've got a new showrunner. Once upon a time, we had a showrunner, and and he went away. We've got, a, I think, in many ways, a better one now. Ashley, I'm excited about this. I am, too. I... Okay, I'm a big fan of ER, um, and I also really like that she's a writer as well. I think that that really, that helps so much. It helps with with making sure, you know, when you're in charge of the whole shebang, having multiple skills besides just, oh, I'm a good showrunner um, is so important. And I think having a writing background, and she wrote like, I think, 18 episodes of ER back in the day and has had writing duties on several other shows. I just, I think that that bodes well for good storytelling. Absolutely. The uh, the news being broken on the Vampire Chronicles Facebook page. We've got a link in the show notes here. Uh, you can It'll take you straight to it. But Christopher announced it. He said, Today I am thrilled to tell you that after an exhaustive search, we've joined forces with the perfect showrunner, a woman of vast experience and impeccable professionalism who brings with her a deep respect for the material. Say hello to Dee Johnson. Uh, there's a photo of Dee and Christopher and Anne and uh, their friend and valued team member Eric Shaw Quinn. Uh, Eric, by the way, was the um, narrator of the most recent Lestat uh, novel as well. The one, I don't know if you go back and listen to that episode, I was a little bit uh, disappointed that he had replaced the previous narrator, but uh, Eric did a good job. Um, where does D come from? As you mentioned, she wo- she worked on ER for quite a while. Uh, she worked on The Good Wife. She was behind Boss, the Kelsey Grammer series, uh, short-lived on Showtime, I believe. She worked on Nashville, and the most recent thing, and probably the one that might have the most connection directly to our series, is the science fiction odyssey Mars. That's a, a, a big... Um, speculative, you know, science fiction show where you have a lot of world building, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think uh, that might be a project that you and I take a look at online and see if we can't um, bring our thoughts on how her work there might reflect on her work for the Vampire Chronicles, just in the same way that we discussed um, the Castle Rock series for Hulu and how that might give us an idea of where the Vampire Chronicles show might go on Hulu. Uh, D is a woman of color. Uh, she is also, am I wrong? Is she a member of the LGBT community? I think so. I think I, I read that somewhere. So. Yes, indeed. I believe so. Yeah. So the, the nature, the very nature of her personal experiences, I think are going to bring, uh, a life to the otherness of the vampire world that thus far hasn't been presented to us on film. Uh, really it's clear in Anne's work. And even as a 
you know, a cis white woman has um, always felt othered. Uh, she's said that in interviews uh, her entire life. She's always felt as an outsider, and she brings that perspective very much to her work. Her vampires are in many ways allegories for LGBTQ um, community members and the struggles that they sometimes face Um being accepted and being seen for who they are uh, alongside uh, their straight brothers and sisters. Um, it's an interesting idea, I think, and I think one that's uh, time is due. Also, I feel like it's likely that she is going to work well with Christopher and Anne uh, because of her experiences and because of the fact that she and Christopher share that community and, and that uh, background. I, I think it is very likely that this will be a great working relationship that we can look forward to many years of, of fruitful production out of, hopefully anyway. I think, and you and I talked about this, the one thing that I don't think we want is like what you had with The Walking Dead, which worked out, I guess, okay in the end. That's still a very successful series. But you literally had a different showrunner for the first three years in a row, I think, before mm-hmm. they finally settled in. It was just constant overturn, constant new directions for, for the show, the tone of how you're going to build everything. And, and with a series that is as wide-ranging as the vampire chronicles is and as different in tone from story to story right like the the um narrative thrust of the vampire lestat or the queen of the damned is quite different than something like the tale of the body thief which is different even yet again than something like uh memnock the devil so to be able to tell all of those stories and the wide range of experiences and characters that uh, are going to be present in this series i think that um d is hopefully just the right voice. I'm very, very positive about this development. Yeah, I have, I have good feelings about it too. I think that, um, I think that something that we all worry about, I think in the back of our minds a little bit at least is to have the relationships kind of watered down Mm. and, 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 and make things real heteronormative, um, in this world, which it's totally not. And so I think that to have, you know, to have clear eyes, and a clear voice is going to be really important for the showrunner. And I think in order to be able to make the stories, to connect the stories, because you are correct, they're so different stylistically, book to book, um, narrative voice to narrative voice. It's a very, very different experience. But I think somebody who has a lot of experience and has experienced a, um, a, a, a lot of different facets of life and can look at it from so many different perspectives, I think that that's really going to give us a lot of continuity with it. All right, let's get into today's main topic because I th- I feel like, oh my God, Ashley, you, you and I both have quite a few things to say about this. Uh, the, the film is The Queen of the Damned, starring Aaliyah and Stuart Townsend in particular. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling it up here. When did this movie come out, as a matter of fact? I don't it. Have came it. out later than I remember it. I yeah, me too. That, I thought it came out like in, in the late... I feel like it was the late 90s, but then it, I thought something I read said it was like 2000. Yeah, so it's February 22nd, 2002 was the release date. And I, I will say that um, something that we should preface this entire discussion with is a little bit of what was going on behind the scenes when they you know, got to this production. So the, the film writes had uh, floated around Hollywood to different production studios and, and uh, different overarching studios a couple of different times after Interview with the Vampire. There were several attempts, actually, to make this story and to continue that uh, film. The 
actual sequel fell apart pretty quickly, I think, and it had more to do with the quick rise of of Brad Pitt and the continued uh, flourishing of Tom Cruise's career. It was just very difficult to get both of those actors back into this project as they were <laughs> basically the top two men in Hollywood for a long time uh, after the uh, release of that film. What ended up happening is the production studio was under the gun. They were going to lose the rights to this um, story, to these characters, if they didn't make a film. And so this one got sort of shoved through the process. Uh, Aaliyah was cast in particular to capitalize on her rising star as a, a pop singer at the time. And then, of course, you had her untimely death, which happened right after the release of this film or, or basically coinciding with the release of this film. So it sort of cast the whole thing in a very weird light. Um, the fact that the film itself isn't very good, the finished product isn't great because it was rushed through, uh, just adds to this sort of like weird turd in the punch bowl that this is compared to the rest of this franchise. Right. I mean, it's, it's so strange that this even exists in some ways to me. It's, it's okay. I, I, I had to really stop myself from like sharing on in our Facebook group, my experience as I was watching this, because I even turned it into a drinking game. Um, I was having a great time <laughs> watching it, but it's so like there's some things about it that are really that are really great. I, I actually I don't there's some things about it I don't hate. Um but so much of it is just WTF. You know, like so much of it is why why and why this part of the story? Why are we focusing on this and characters acting in ways that they are completely that are completely uh, the opposite of how these characters would behave in life in, in in the world that we know them to exist in like fake ass Marius. I cannot, I'm so like, I feel personally attacked by that terrible portrayal of Marius. Well, and the real, the really horrible thing is uh, very few of the actors in this are actually bad actors, right? Like, uh, no, but Lena they're all Olin. bad in it. Lena Olin plays, uh, Maharet. I think she's quite a good actor. And even in this, she's got a few moments. It's just the script is so threadbare to offer anything to, to hang on or to chew around. It is, it is a real, real mess. Uh, the very first thing that struck me as I began this movie, rewatching it this time, I, I watched it a couple of months ago after we finished the novel reread. And then, um, I sat down and watched it again the other night on my iPad this movie is a perfect example of how you could do a first-person voiceover narration, which the novels has, obviously. The novels are written as journals or diaries, basically, uh, from the these vampiric characters, Louis in Interview with the Vampire, and then uh, Lestat for this one, and uh, for the Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned, obviously, and most of the rest of the series, frankly. Uh, the film tries to keep that, and it uses a narration from Lestat, and it absolutely ruins everything. <laughs> It's, oh, it's, it's so just, bad. it is immediately terrible. Uh, there is one interesting thing, though, in this very opening scene, I thought. The first time that we see, so you go quite a long, uh, a few minutes anyway, without seeing Lestat's face. You see him, you see his body, you see him moving, you see a lot of scenery as you hear him, but you don't see his face for a long time. And then all of a sudden, the line is something like, maybe it was the hundred years of rest, maybe it was just that first meal, and you're watching him feed, by the way, and then all of a sudden, he reveals his face. Like, you, you cut in close on Stuart Townsend as Lestat. 
And he says, uh, maybe it was just that first meal, but I felt better than ever. It reminds me so much of the moment in Iron Man 2 where they've recast War Machine, uh, James Rhodes' <laughs> character. And uh, so the new one shows up. It's Don Cheadle in the second Iron Man. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. says, it's you? And Don Cheadle says, it's me. Let's move on. And that's the only reference that they make to the fact that he's been recast. But I felt like this was sort of the filmmakers trying to make a nod at the fact that this is a new Lestat here. It's the only reference they make to the other film or previous events. Uh, and when you really get into the story and and actually try to put together the world that they've constructed <laughs> here, it's even more frustrating some of the things that they've skipped over or left out or whatever. But but that moment, I actually gave a little smile. I was like, well, all right, look at you. He's not better than Tom Cruise <laughs> in any way. Not as an actor, not as a not as a looker, definitely not as a Lestat. Uh, his accent fades in and out and is horrendous oh my God. throughout. That's, that's my drinking game. It's the worst. Game. Either that do it that... or don't. Either oh. do it or don't. Jesus Christ, bless him. I drank every time Stuart Townsend's accent changed. Because <laughs> he used like he used like three different accents and then I think his own in there as well. And so anytime he dropped his accent or 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 effed it up, I would drink. And I had many beers in the in the span of this film's runtime. I have to be very honest. Um I, even now, I feel like I should be drinking every time I think about how bad his accents are, wherever I am in whatever situation. <laughs> I would be willing to... I am not a wealthy man, and I am also not a gambler, <laughs> but I would be willing to bet a fairly large sum of money that Stuart Townsend, as of the, the filming of this project anyway, had never read any of these books, not a single one. <laughs> oh, I would think that that is true for sure. Uh, and just, likely the case for most of the rest of the cast as well. This, well. this this is not a cast that's bringing a lot to the table as far as their understanding or interpretation of the characters as presented on the page. No, and you're totally right that this is not a bad cast. I have never seen some of these actors act so poorly, though. Like, this is, there's very bad acting in this movie. This movie, and I don't know if that's a fault. I mean, I'm sure it's a combination. The writing, the directing, the actors not doing their proper research and getting to know these characters. But good God, I it was painful sometimes to watch. I felt like I was watching, like, uh, like it's like a high school play version interpretation of this it was just it was it was it was awkward sometimes I felt I felt that like like embarrassment for them <laughs> here's the perfect example okay the actress who plays um Jessie is uh, Marguerite Moreau I've only really seen her in a couple of things before the thing that I recognized her from or remembered her from was wet hot American summer Mm -hmm. uh, she played the she's in the original she's in the Netflix reboot or whatever they did you know there's like a sequel thing and, and the prequel series that they did she's in all of those that is literally like a parody of 80s uh, you know camp movies and yet her acting there is head and shoulders above this film which at least pretends to be uh, a companion piece to what was a highbrow adult horror suspense movie in Interview with the Vampire. You know, like, Interview with the Vampire was the kind of R-rated movie that Silence of the Lambs is. It's it's one that is it wins awards and is considered right. highbrow entertainment for real, uh, you know, 
right thinking adults. <laughs> you know, that's what Interview with a Vampire is. This is schlocky sci fi channel horror. It's just, yeah, it's just really, really sad and depressing. And I am so <laughs> thankful that very, very soon it will be effectively washed from the pop culture memory by the fact that this series will exist. That's yeah. the one big thing that we can look forward to here. It has a real Sharknado feel to it, you know? It's just, <laughs> it's not, it's not good for anybody. And I, my apologies for, I know that a few of you guys that listen really liked, really like this movie. And I think that's fine. I just, and there were things I liked better about it this time around. And that I was like, oh, that's actually not, that's not a terrible idea. But then they always, then they just go too far with it. You know, it's like, like, Lestat's playing the violin like a crazed lunatic and it's awesome and you're like "Ooh, I'm getting into this moment and then his eyes start glowing why why so why? bad so bad all right before we get into uh the different moments in the, uh, the the movie itself let's talk about one aspect that I think a lot of fans do enjoy particularly fans in our community I know I've heard from them um a lot of people like the music in this yeah I, I don't. I don't love it. I don't even, I don't really like it. Uh, I didn't like this music when it was the music that was popular. <laughs> like when this was, when corn was at its height, I was not a corn fan. When I remember very specifically the announcement being made, I remember Ann being excited about it that uh, uh, the, I can't remember his name, but the lead singer of corn was going to be involved in the creation of the music for Lestat's album. She was very excited in the beginning, at least publicly. That was her statement from it. And I thought, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's just, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what I would do instead. And you and I have talked about that in the past. How do you do this accurately? Um, and how do you do it where you satisfy a big portion of the fan base in any way? You're never going to satisfy everybody. But this was definitely a miss for me. Um, I think this is going to be an issue, though, anytime and every time you tell this story and actually make the music. If you actually do the rock star thing. I think it instantly, it, it cannot be what the music is supposed to be in the book, which is this seductive, unbelievably appealing, world-shaking, popular thing, right? Um, there's a trailer that just came out the other day for a film called Yesterday, which is a world in which this guy like he has a bike accident or something. There's a flash. The whole world goes out of power for a few seconds. And when it comes back on, he's the only one that remembers that the Beatles existed. Everyone else doesn't. Rem they they those <laughs> just that never happened. So he begins a rock career writing all of the Beatles music, right? This is what yes. it feels like to me. We're effectively asking for with this. What is described in the book is a rock star and a set of music, uh, an album or two, that is so transformational and so different than anything we've heard before that it literally changes the world of rock music in a day or two, right? That's what the novel describes. Well, if such a person existed, if such a rock star existed, if someone had written such music, it would already be out and you couldn't make the movie around it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not, that's not a realistic thing. So I am very concerned about this particular aspect of adapting this story as we move forward. And, and you and I've talked in other episodes before. We don't have to retread that ground. I think there are other ways around this. I think you could do the novel, the public you know, uh, persona of Lestat without doing the rock star thing, you could go in a totally different direction, make it a podcaster, you know, make it, make him have a podcast, uh, whatever. I don't know, but I am worried 
that there is no music that will satisfy me. You know, I mean, I have my favorites. He, if he came out and sounded like the Decemberists, I would probably like that a lot more. But also, that's not Lestat either. So, right. And people who hate the Decemberists are going to hate the music again. So, wh- what do you do, Ashley? Uh, you know, I I don't know. But this was one aspect of 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 it that I honestly I I didn't hate. Um, it's not really my style of music either. And it definitely, I had moments of just. I have this like empathy embarrassment that I'll feel <laughs> for for in 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 some experience in some situations and I and I felt like that so much through this movie I was just cringing with embarrassment for the actors at times and I don't know if it was just like if it was I could kind of feel from them that they couldn't even commit to the absurdity of the entire thing or what it was. But I will say, like, I didn't I don't hate the music in this. And I think for the time that it came out, they were really smart. I feel like, you know, as far as like rock bands that shake the earth when they perform, you know, I think about early like early Rolling Stones and things like that, you know, that are just like unbelievably good and sexy and and you can't explain why they're sexy and that sort of thing that's kind of how i how i think of what lestat should be or in, in in that presentation of the music but again like you said those those styles of music are either not popular now or or have already happened you know have, like it's hard to do something groundbreaking when so much groundbreaking has already been done as far as music goes and probably not being musical geniuses you know that i'm sure they have very great people working on the music for this but it's not like it's some uh, you know otherworldly musical genius working on it so i just don't think that we're, they're gonna ha- come up with anything that's that's new and groundbreaking the, the best thing they can do is embrace the music of the time and hope that and hope for the best you know if that's the direction they go in yeah i will say look at um just came out this past year, um, A Star is Born. And the music in that movie is actually quite good. The, the right. stuff that comes from, uh, oh, what's his name? The, the male rock star. I can't think of either of their characters' names now. Uh, but uh, the one that comes from the male rock star, like they sound like a modern, you know, country-ish rock star kind of guy. Like that, it could, that could work. You could imagine that guy's career behind those songs. And right. likewise, the stuff that, that Gaga is featured on, like that all sounds like her or like a similar artist that could be popular today. And the key to that is that they used Gaga behind the scenes to create a lot of that music. They also brought in Lucas Nelson, Willie's uh-huh. son. Willie Nelson's son uh, was a major driving force behind a lot of that music. And it shows he is an actual you know, currently producing popular music musician, a singer-songwriter, and so is Gaga, and the two of them together can produce that work. So if you get that kind of level of involvement on it, I, I, I could see how you could come up with something that was positive. I will say that here's a couple of highlights for me. The, um, I don't know the name of the song, but the the one that uh, Akasha is dancing in the bar early when she first appears, I think it's, it's the chorus is something like, Why Won't You Die or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That song is very compelling and very fitting for the moment, too. Like, it's sexy and exotic and yet threatening and, um, you know, it's a little scary and it's got a great edge to it when she sort of brings about the destruction of the bar and everything. So there are moments. Yeah, there are absolutely moments, even in this soundtrack, that I don't detest. But uh, that that's a big stumbling block, I think, in the in the future of this. You already referenced my next point that I want to get to, uh, and it is the 
origin for Lestat in this film and the uh, way that they present this universe. So in this movie, he was uh, kidnapped from his home, taken to the Mediterranean, and he is made into a vampire by Marius. This idea of combining and shortcut, I understand why you need to do it, right? Like, what does Magnus matter in right. the great scheme of things if, if the only books you're working on is The Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned? Absolutely. I get it. Uh, especially if you're trying to get the movie under two hours, you're trying to tell both these stories at once. Okay, Marius is a character that matters later. Why don't we just tie them together directly? Marius and, and Lestat do have a father-son relationship. They've got a mm-hmm. maker-mentee, you know, mentor-mentee relationship. Um, so I can understand it. But by making Marius his maker, but preserving the fact that Lestat didn't ask for it, <laughs> you ruin both their characters. Absolutely. <laughs> you just absolutely ruin both of them. First of all, part of Marius's power and his position amongst the rest of the vampires, the biggest part of it becomes because he kept the king and queen for so long, and, and he is respected because of that and his age. But even more than that, because there are many vampires, especially in the later books, that are much older than Marius. The reason why he maintains such an important part uh, of the, the coven, I think, is because of his moral compass and the strictness with which he holds to it. He was not a religious man in his mortal life, but he was a very moral man, and he had a code of ethics that he held to even after becoming a vampire. You can see that in the fact that he only ever really creates Pandora as an offspring, right? Like, he never he never gives the gift to another vampire, and even then, he sort of begrudgingly does it because it's out of love and this fascination with a creature that swears that she was tied to him in a former life, you know? So, like, he's caught up in a romance at, the, at that moment. That's literally his soulmate in some ways. He could have done it for Lestat's friends. He could have come and saved Lestat earlier in Lestat's plight than he did in the novels. He didn't because of, again, the patience, the uh, the logic that Marius brings to bear on everything, the, the not cold, but the calculating nature of his intellect. All of that's thrown overboard. He toys with Lestat in the beginning. Then he toys with David Talbot at the end. It's, it's so not Marius. Oh, it's just, it pisses me off. Oh, I was so angry. <laughs> I was so angry about this. Like, irrationally furious. And I think that because we've learned more about Marius, even more about Marius since this movie came out, that it's even more offensive to me. I'm like, this portrayal of this character is is completely, completely wrong. Now, I don't hate the way that they combined things and that the way that they that's actually I was like actually this is a pretty smart way to kind of cut out the middlemen get to the meat of the story um but I think it's it's the way like his callousness like that's not a quality of Marius he's not a callous person he's not a callous vampire whatever um that's not a quality that he really possesses and this character was very callous and and menacing and and toying and I actually I, I I wrote down, why is Marius playing Lestat an interview with a vampire while Lestat is playing Louis? And that's how I felt, like, especially after, right after um, he turned Lestat, like that whole section. Um, it just, it, I felt like I was watching Interview with a Vampire again with Lestat toying with Louis. And, and it was like, I was, I just was so 
freaking confused and so aggravated. Yes, yes, absolutely. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. It is, it's a role reversal in many ways. Uh, very, very strange. How is this movie so short and yet it feels so long? Already at this, at this point, I'm taking notes about how interminable this movie is and we're like 20 minutes into it, maybe. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Like I was definitely several times I checked the timer as it was ticking down because I rented it. Don't don't buy this. You don't want it forever. Um, But I rented this on uh, Google Google Play and I just was like watching the time tick down. I was like, please let this be over. This is torture. Here's the other thing that struck me at this point, because we we start hearing uh, we, we realize that we are getting the story of Lestat through Jesse reading his diary. But this isn't a novel that she's reading. This isn't the book, the interview, uh, you know, the vampire Lestat. Uh, Lestat has not published this. This was a, a, a literally a journal, a diary that he had left behind somewhere and the Talamasca had stolen and has in their archives. So in this universe that they've created, Lestat is bold enough to do the rock star thing, but not bold enough to print his to story. Write his book. It's like, oh, come on. They're not like these vampires are famous for their novels. Like that is the that's the center. You've got to have the novels be a thing in the TV show. Right. Well, here, yeah. Here's the other thing. I'm sorry. I don't. Lestat does not strike me as the type of guy that keeps a journal. I'm just saying that that does not seem like him to me. Yeah. No, it's again, it it makes him more like Louis than Lestat. It really. Right. Is, absolutely. You got the whole thing wrong. Uh so you actually referenced the scene with the violins earlier. This is the first thing in the whole film that I thought, this is a good scene. I really enjoyed yeah. the whole, that whole section, in fact. It's electric sounding, first of all. Him yeah. playing the violin it didn't sound right, uh, but I dug that. I think that that's something that we see in the story of Nicholas a few mm-hmm. times, the the way that Lestat describes him playing, especially after he's turned, uh, it's otherworldly and haunting, et cetera, et cetera. I think that all, that's all very, very cool. Um, the tension that builds all the way up until the moments that the, the humans die. It reminds me a lot of the scene in interview when Lestat toys with the two prostitutes in front yes. of Louis. Yeah. So, Right before this scene, though, right before the violin scene, there's the scene where uh, Lestat's agent, uh, Roger, brings in the two ladies for him to feed on. And I think that scene is meant to evoke the scene from interview, but it ends up feeling clumsy and ridiculous, whereas the violin scene is so much better in that respect. But even there, it's a little overacted. And then, as you said, they flip his (laughs) eye lights on and you're like, what the hell? (laughs) What the hell? But even in that in that previous scene where they bring the two the two ladies in, um, and he starts to crawl up the wall, I was like, "Oh God!" Oh. I well, I, I was kind of sucked into that moment for a second. I was like, "This is they, their minds have got to be blown." And then he drops down from the ceiling, and they scream like they're in a student produced horror film for a high school, and it's and it complete. You're like, "Oh, you guys almost had this. You almost had me." Cause that's the kind of shit I like. I was, that's awesome and creepy and uh, crawling up walls. is terrifying. And that's something that I remember from Dracula. You know what I mean? Those are, that's like, to me, like iconic vampire things to do. And, and then they just, they, they always, they ruin it by bad acting or going too far. Well, and it, it's uh, again, kind of reminiscent of the scene where, um, who is it? Santiago is toying with Louis in the alleyway in Paris in interview with the vampire, where he runs up the, 
wall. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then is standing upside down uh, suddenly for a minute, you know. Um, so right after this, we get a little bit more with Jessie and we get a, a, a better idea of the organization that she's a part of. So this is, again, a huge no-no for me. They have screwed the Talamasca up completely. They're just vampire hunters. That's what the Talamasca is in this world, except they're pansy vampire hunters. They don't engage. They don't interact. They don't have a plan to exterminate or, or inter, uh, you know, introduce themselves to the vampiric community at all. They're just monitoring them. It is, it is the most pathetic version of what they could be. And likewise, Jessie is a shell of herself. Ugh. So Jessie in the novels is a diligent, gifted hard-working, hard-headed investigator. She is fighting her own paranormal organization, the Talamasca, to get to the truth of this vampire story uh, while she's also hiding the fact that she works for the Talamasca at all from her family. She's this woman with the tragic past of her aunt and she's sort of like shunted around as an orphan, et cetera, et cetera, but also lives a life of privilege because of the wealth of the family, et cetera. So all of these things come together in the person of Jesse. We get none of that in this movie all she is is lestat's groupie that's mm-hmm. all she is in this film and it is disgusting yeah it's a complete waste of what is a really cool complex character it's just a complete waste and a character that i really really love in the books but that's just uh, yeah that's a total fumble and i don't know i don't know whose fault that is that's definitely the writing i mean it's definitely the writing but it's you know it's down to down i don't know every bit of it her ugh, yeah it just felt like she's it felt like she's the type of person that would write letters love letters to a serial killer in jail <laughs> so like an hour in uh marius comes and meets lestat they're sitting on like a billboard or something above the city <laughs> and having a conversation which first of all i was reminded at this moment in the book M- marius is still buried under the remains mm-hmm. of the temple that akasha has destroyed and like pandora and uh, somebody has to come save him or whatever like uh, it's oh god dude, there's just so much good story that we missed here But it finally occurred to me what happened with this film. This film, what happened is the studio was under the gun. They had to get this movie made. They had to get the rights maintained by getting this under production. And so literally there's like an all-hands meeting, and they ask the room, hey, we got to write this Anne Rice movie. Does anybody know those books? And like one dude in the back, his wife has read them and loved them for years and keeps talking about them. (laughs) So he sticks his hand up and he goes, yeah, yeah, I know all about the vampires and stuff. (laughs) You know, like... And quickly, the narrator says in a uh, a Ron Howard voice, he did not. (laughs) He did not know about the vampires and stuff, for sure. (laughs) No. Um, So look, very little about this movie is any good at all. Aaliyah is not perfect, but she does absolutely capture the otherworldly exotic nature of Akasha. And that first moment when you see her, when she comes into the bar, the way she moves is electric. It's a terrible script. Her lines are horrible. The fangs that they give her are a little ridiculous. The the vampiric special effects, the way they flip upside down and attack each other, like all of it is nonsense. But still, there's like the in the middle there, I can understand why somebody, some executive was watching the dailies of this and going, Aaliyah is going to be a GD superstar. Like this is going to make her the next Marilyn Monroe and we're all going to make a billion dollars off of it. Um, 
Yeah, this might have been a breakout role for her if she had lived, even though the film wasn't any good. I think it's possible that she might have risen above it just because she is really, really compelling. And she's got so little screen time, too. That's the mm-hmm. other thing that I didn't realize looking back on this. And even when I had watched it recently, to go in to watch it the second time, I had forgotten we don't get any backstory effectively on Akasha. We don't meet Maharat really or, or understand anything. First of all, the twins don't exist. It's right. only Maharat, right? There's no Makare. Uh, also, it was about this point in the movie that I realized Louis and Claudia don't exist in this universe either. What? Yep. And so, so and they never explain like when when the whole coven starts to show up, they never explain who who those vampires are and why they're important. And if you're only going to include a handful of them, why the hell would you not include, at least at the very least, Louis, who everybody knows, if not introduce some version of Armand? You know, like it just, oh, it did. Some of the choices they made were just mind boggling to me at the things that they chose to keep and the things they, they, they chose to toss. Like, it just seems like, well, no, we already know Louis. Even if Louis doesn't look like Louis, you know, even if it's not Brad Pitt, we still know the character because we saw that movie. So why the hell would you not have Louis in there at this point? And Pandora is one of my favorites. I freaking love, I can't wait till we get to talk about that book. I love that character. But I was like, why the hell? She's just, this is a waste of use of her. And then they kill them all. Uh. Yeah, they literally killed almost all of them. There, I think there are three vampires left at the end, and that's it. So here's the cast list, by the way, of the of the vampires that we know from the books that are listed in the cast. Here's who you have. You've got Lestat is played by Stuart Townsend. Uh, Jesse's played by Marguerite Moreau. Akasha is Aaliyah. Marius is Vincent Perez. Maharat is Lena Olin. Okay, now. The others that show up towards the end. First of all, there's only four of them. Right. <laughs> like, so the whole, you know, the whole uh, articulate, of, uh, the whole coven of the articulate is like six people. Um, <laughs> Mayel is there. He's one of them. He's played in this film by Christian Manon. Uh, Pandora is the uh, woman with the jewelry, the uh, sort of um, Eastern looking uh, woman. She's played by Claudia Black. Cayman is played by Bruce Spence, uh, and I actually confused Mael and Cayman in the scene. In my head, I thought surely, and we'll get to it. Well, you know what? We'll go ahead and jump in. There's, there's the one guy who's sort of like I, I called him caveman vampire. He's yes. like he looks a little dazed. He looks like he's covered in dirt the whole movie. Some uh, really sort of a strange hair. looking guy. Seems like- to have some relationship with Jesse, although they never speak. Right. But there's a a couple of moments where he touches Jesse in a sort of a protective way. So bizarre. I thought for sure that was Cayman. It's not. It's Mayel. Cayman is presented in all white and you only really see him in the background. And then once you see him uh, sort of from above as he's attacking Akasha at the end, he's one of the the vampires that goes to attack Akasha and and try to kill her. Uh, That is supposed to be Cayman. And he's played by Bruce Spence. Bruce Spence, you might recognize if you actually go and look uh, up like his IMDb picture or whatever. He is well known for uh, Mad Max 2 and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. The guy's like six seven. He's a very strange-looking actor, and he is sort of known for those weird character roles. He's, he was in, I think, the second Matrix movie too. He's been at a bunch of stuff. But again, he is so weird-looking. I thought for sure that was Cayman. No, they, it's, they've flipped him around. The um, the other uh, 
the other actor that or the other vampire there that I thought again uh, for sure was maybe Mayel. I don't know. He had the long flowing yellow hair. I thought I don't know. Is that their idea of like what a druid looks like? That was supposed to be Armand. They did at least get Armand young. But again, if you're going to put him, first of all, how do you have Armand without a relationship to Marius? First, right? And second of all, if you're going to put Armand in this movie, why don't you ever mention him by name? We literally, right. like, what are you doing? So what, is that, the, what is the point? Was that the Loris Tyrell looking guy? Yes. Yeah, oh. exactly. See, I the heartthrob, the guy out of, out of the, you know, uh, tiger beat. Yeah, yeah, he looks like Loris Tyrell to me. Ugh, and it's the whole, just the whole thing, so, so frustrating, and I, I cannot, I'm just, I'm not okay with it. Here, here's the, <laughs> uh, okay, uh, here's a little bit of praise. Here's a little bit of praise. There's one good joke. There's one good joke in the whole movie. Uh, Jesse, she gets to Lestat's house. This is going to be the second time that they will have met. Uh, she comes in with the other girl. Roger, the, his manager, brings the two girls in, and Lestat and Jesse start bantering. They're just ignoring the other girl, basically. And uh, uh, Jesse says something to him, and then he snipes back at her and calls her a Talamascan like it's a bad word. And the other girl pipes up real quick and goes, I'm an Episcopalian. I thought that was the, it was the laugh out loud moment in the whole movie. I literally busted my gut. Oh, God. Uh, although, that springs off the back of a moment that I think is one of Stuart Townsend's few good ones in the film as well. When he first saves Jesse in the alley, uh, he beats up, kills, or runs off the other vampires. And then he's standing over her. This is right after she's you know claimed that Marius is her host or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's standing over her. The other vampires are all gone. She's still hiding her her face, and she's like, it's quiet for a second. So she like uh, pulls her hands back away from her eyes, and he says, boo. (laughs) It's not really great. Like a better actor would have made it a a laugh moment, I think, (laughs) or a scary moment or something. But still, that was like the one moment in the whole film where I thought, yeah, that's actually Lestat. For a moment, that made sense as the character that he is you know first of all he would save the girl and also he would scare her jokingly in that moment there you know like that his playfulness i get that his pleasure in his own powers that's something that i think is very central to the character of who lestat is and that was like the only moment in the film where it came out i think (laughs) and then of course (laughs) as i was writing down that note they have an extended sequence that follows that where Lestat flies Jesse all around the world before he ever gets the cloud gift from Akasha. So will you just tell this freaking story right, please? Paramount and Hulu and Christopher and Ann and Dee, just tell the just tell the damn story. For Joel's sake. When I when that scene happened, I was like, Joel's gonna be so pissed. <laughs> it's l- listen. Vampires don't, in general, fly. They just don't in Anne's universe. That's no. not a thing that you need to worry about until they're like a millennia old. Oh my god! <laughs> as I as I continued my drinking game, I feel like my notes got more and more hilarious. At least to me, like when I jotted down, they keep lighting Stuart Townsend in a way that makes him look like both Daniel Radcliffe and Kira Knightley. <laughs> Uh, oh. I just had an image in my head of Daniel Radcliffe and Kira Knightley put together, and you're right. It's Stuart Townsend. It is. It's insane. In this movie. They had a baby, and he went back to the past somehow. Yeah. I see, and they. I will say this, too. Going back to Aaliyah, who 
is absolutely breathtakingly beautiful in this. And I even oh, think she is so hot. Just it is, so it's hot. Just unbelievable. Like that costume, like she looks she looks effing awesome. And the way that they did her makeup and the highlight on her cheekbones and she looks like she's made almost of of like chocolate and bronze and I just want to sop her up. How the how our pale pasty vampires don't have any sort of good look to them is really kind of sad. <laughs> like they all look like they're been, they're sweaty and they've been sick for a few weeks and they all have circles around their eyes. Like the makeup, I, I really think they missed, they missed the mark and should have really caught that kind of preternatural magic that they were able to do with her, but that they didn't even, it feels like even try to do with the rest of the vampires. Yes. Like Anne's books are very clear. First and foremost, vampires in her universe choose their offspring specifically for their beauty. Basically, no one is ever born as a vampire that's not a fairly beautiful individual to begin with, uh, barring Magnus himself, who stole the powers. But then also, the blood works a trick on whatever tissue it touches to bring out its luminosity, its its beauty. You know, whatever radiant nature, whatever radiant qualities you have as an individual are magnified and, and uh, impressed. You know, I think about the transition scene with Gabrielle, right? Like she goes from lying on the bed dying of consumption or whatever it was that she had uh, to this vibrant, powerful, immortal being and the loving nature in which Lestat describes describes her beauty and the, the radiance that she has there in the room like oh translate that onto screen please just pre please yeah these vampires looked clammy <laughs> let me let me ask you some so let's talk about something else kind of creepy and, and disgusting in the the decor here uh it, i'm about an hour and 15 minutes in and it occurs to me that these creepy ass dolls that jesse had as a kid it's something you see several times in the film when you see yes. her flashbacks she's always got these weird dolls and then in maharit's house toward the end there are there you see a bunch of the dolls again where do all these dolls come from if claudia doesn't the only reason those dolls are a part of interview with a vampire is because they were buying them for the vampire little girl like creepy ass dolls is not a thing that it, that's in this novel just because vampires don't like creepy ass dolls <laughs> that was because they had a vampire little girl like none of it's again it's like somebody watched a, a, a 30 minutes of this film on cable once and they were like yeah i could tell that story it's totally cool <laughs> it'll be fine the fans won't mind the other thing that i noticed about mahari and jesse by the way they're like a foot and a half difference in height <laughs> oh seriously and Maharet is the one that's way taller. Like, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think generally across the course of human history, if Jesse is supposed to be like a 2,000-year-plus descendant, or, or really is more like a 4,000-year-plus descendant of Maharet, she should be like a foot and a half taller than Maharet, right? Not the other way around. Well, and I think she's even described in the book as being tall. I could have made I that I think so, up, too. But I feel like she I is. I think so. I usually take note of that because I'm always sad nobody writes cool parts for short characters. <laughs> yeah they're all jack reachers they're all it's supposed all, to be six and a half feet tall yeah if you're short if you're short danny devito plays you in the movie <laughs> yeah there's two heights there's like there's a runway model and troll those are yeah, those yeah. are your two heights it's my experience vampires, in the industry <laughs> uh vampires even the original vampire by the way they cannot hang out in the sun did you know that ashley um i heard that rumor yeah i heard that it's rumor a whole once. thing um, and yet, 
here Lestat is just walking around this GD island again, Akasha 2, and I'm like, the whole point of the introduction of Akasha, the entire point of that character being introduced into this mythos is the fact that once upon a time, all the vampires in the world got burnt because they left her out in the sun. Yep. Like, oh my God, what are you doing? <laughs> Oh, this episode is the episode that makes us growl. <laughs> I, I will say this. Here's the one thing that I do want. There is a moment, there's a really great moment early in the Tale of the Body Thief novel where Lestat goes into the sun for a while. He's mm -hmm. it's sort of like a little self-destructive, but really he, he knows he's not going to die. He does it mostly as like... A, I don't know, a show of penitence, I guess. And also in the end, he ends up with a great tan. Like the rest of the book, he, he has a nice tan <laughs> and fits in better among humans. Um, but again, the torture of that moment physically for him is a big point in the novel, like him laying there in the sun and contemplating his own mortality, even as he's this incredibly powerful being who's just lived through this interaction with you know, the queen of the damned, et cetera, et cetera. All of that's there. I would like that moment played out on screen eventually. Um but again, like you can't you you can't just have a scene where they're walking around in the sun. <laughs> yeah, I had forgotten about that. And when when the sun was like peeking through the the curtains in his eye, I was like, "What the hell's what the hell? What the hell's happening? What are we doing?" And then he went outside, and I almost threw my tablet across. The so. I, I mentioned the the one good laugh line earlier. Here's probably, I think, the worst line in the whole movie, and it's a bad delivery from an actress that I like. Aaliyah gives it uh, when she when she and Lestat burst into the room and all the vampires are there waiting on them. She says, warms my blood to see you all gathered. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. It's just so bad. Oh, uh, but we can't. We have to talk about the terrible Louisiana accents from Lestat's band at the beginning. Oh my God! I had forgotten. Truthfully, I'd forgotten. There's so many other bad accents in this film. There are, but you're right. So, and there's like three different versions of it too. All three of the actors that speak take a swing at. I guess they're trying to do New Orleans, but like one of them sounds like he's from a movie about Ravel that's made by people from Minnesota, and then the other one sounds like you know he he was in Forrest Gump, and then the third one sounds like. Again, he watched a film once about Tennessee Williams or something and said, yeah, I could do a New Orleans accent. Yeah. Um, no, they're all terrible. All yes. of them are horrible. I was really happy that we were only subjected to that for a short time. I was really worried. I was like, I can't. I can't. Bad Southern accents, guys, being from the South, they're terrible. There's, I don't think that there's another fumbling of an accent that offends me more. Uh, so let's talk about the, the collection of other vampires there. I, we mentioned them offhandedly. Um, uh, Bruce Spence, I, I talked about some of his background. You've probably seen him in some other things. The actor who played uh, Mayel, though, the, as I called him, the caveman vampire, uh, <laughs> he is a very, very well-known, very well-established, or, or was at the time, I believe he's passed away now. Uh, Christian Mannon is his name. He's a well-known uh, British film stage actor. Excuse me, not a film actor, a stage actor. Uh, that's what he's primarily known for. Um Claudia Black as uh, Pandora. I, I didn't recognize her at all. Do you mm. know her from, from anything else? No, no. Yeah, uh, I will say not among the vampires, but the only other really named character in the film that, that matters is David Talbot. 
I thought he was okay. Paul McGuire, mm-hmm. excuse me, not McGuire, McGann. Paul McGann plays him. Uh, I thought he was fine. Although, again, they screwed it up with the casting, right? The whole point is David Talbot's an old man. Yeah. Uh, and then and then you have to give him a hot, young, uh, he's like a dark-skinned uh, guy when he when he gets switched, right? And Tell of mm-hmm. the Body Thief. I think he's a, um, you know, a young Middle Eastern man of some sort. Anyway, it's just... It's just all, it's all a miss. It's all a miss, basically. Just one gigantic freaking miss for me. Well, I mean, Um, to tackle two, essentially, you're tackling two novels with this attempt. They're they're covering parts of the Vampire Lestat and then going into Queen of the Damned. That's too much. Too much. It's too much material, you know. But I will say, you know, I don't, I don't hate how they how they moved through those storylines. I think that that wasn't a terrible way to, to approach it as far as, as timeline and, and, and snipping characters here and there. But I do think 100% miss the mark with characterization. Um, and, and, and even, you know, even obviously there's some important moments and important characters that are not included. So that's, that's a real, a real off piece too, to me. But I didn't hate. I didn't hate the like the basic outline, you know, the basic like timeline and how they how they moved through these two two stories. I could imagine the bones of this plot in much better hands, uh, perhaps with some more nods to the original film. If you if you maintain the continuity, even without the continuity of actors, for instance, you could have used some shorthand from that story to, you know cut away at things you'd have to reintroduce in this film and I, I could imagine a film that would have been satisfying absolutely yeah. you're right the, the basic plot line could have worked even as truncated as it is um the one thing they they i think again i'll give it a little bit more praise here they nail the scene in the ending where lestat and jesse go to see david talbot the end of the novel it's one of my favorite things where where lestat's sort of toying with david and offering him immortality and david is saying no, his will is strong, but at the same time, it's clear there is a large part of him that wants it, mm-hmm. right? He wants to go over. He wants the knowledge of what it's like. He wants to be with Jesse and with Lestat and with the rest of this group. Uh, and the actor, Paul McGann, does a pretty good job with limited dialogue and with basically no uh, buildup for his character, really. He plays that well in that final scene. And then, of course, they shortcut that or or stamp on it by sending Marius in to make him a vampire. It's just, Ugh. what are you doing? They, they you always doing? take it too far. And, that, yeah, the way that they handled Marius is unforgivable. Like, that's the thing. I just, I'm like, that is not Marius. He doesn't look like Marius. He doesn't talk like Marius. He doesn't act like Marius. This is, you have really, really fouled up this really great character. I, I will say this. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I'm pretty sure that you have given us the title for this episode. It's one of the few things that's good about this movie. It's it's Aaliyah herself, and you described it. She's chocolate and bronze, right? That is yeah. that amazing. is that is the one good thing about about this film. I think. Um, oh, yeah, here's here's one more point. So okay, Maharat in the end. Well, first of all, there's no the, the symbolism of the brain and the and the right. heart are gone. There's there's none of that. Although we do see the one scene in the middle where Akasha uh, eat bites into the heart. You know that, <laughs> that's at least an interesting moment. But Maharat doesn't have to take the brain and the heart from Akasha in order to become the new queen of the damned. She just has to 
as the Armand character describes it, I think in the film, she took Akasha's death into her is the way yeah. that he describes it. Her very last drop or something. There's nothing magic about the last drop of blood, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, ugh. So here's here's the thing. If, you, if you're going to have this all, well, I, you know what? I'm not even going to bang on it. Yes, yeah, so they turned Maharad into a statue too. That was stupid. Let's don't do that. <laughs> um, but here's what's good about this movie. I realized as I was meditating on it and thinking about it after the credits are rolling, <laughs> This movie is the reason why we never got a real sequel to Interview with a Vampire. Yeah. Interview with a Vampire, which we watched not too long ago, that movie is full of issues. It was a good film. Holds up even to this day still. But it's not a perfect telling of that story. And a sequel made in the end of the 90s or the beginning of the 2000s, even if it had been more accurate to the story like you and I had wanted versus what we got in this film, it still wouldn't have been the right version of the story. This movie existing is the reason why this property has sat quietly so long. And it's the reason why Anne was allowed to take the rights back. Nobody else bought it up because this movie was a stinker and (laughs) ruined it effectively in a lot of people's minds. That is a good thing in the end. Uh, It reminds me of, this is the, the vampiric equivalent of Marvel getting lucky by having all the rights to the original Avengers left behind when they decided to make their movie gamble, right? Like they had sold off the rights to everybody, Spider-Man and the X-Men and, and Daredevil and all their, all the characters that people knew were somewhere else. And they looked and they said, well, what do we got left? And they went, oh, look at that. We got Captain America, Black Widow. Uh, We got the Hulk. We got Thor. We got Iron Man. Turns out that's the original Avengers. Maybe we just make that. And that was exactly the rock, the foundation that you can build this giant enterprise on now. This is the equivalent for our stories. Anne's got a chance now. You know, she's got the right team in place. Uh, D is behind her. Christopher is with her. Paramount Studios seems to be giving their all to this project. Hulu, we know the, the, um, you know, the cachet that they bring uh, to offer creatives uh, for a, a high quality series like this, potentially. So, for all of that, I say thank you to a very, very, very bad movie. <laughs> yes, thank you for this terrible film because hopefully it brings us better things in the future. Okay. Let's uh, let's go to a little follow-up. We got a couple of uh, pieces of uh, feedback, actually, uh, that I want to get to here from folks in the group. Uh, and by the way, you can find us. There's a link in the show notes, but we're on Facebook. Just search for Articulate Coven, or you can go to ArticulateCoven.com to find all of our episodes and uh, links there as well. Uh, Nicholas Danielson in the group says, um, and he's talking about our last episode about Queen of the Damned, the novel. He says, this was wonderful. I particularly loved how you pointed out that Mahara has uh, the connection to humanity and to others that all other vampires desperately try to create through the dark trick itself. That being said, I would have loved to hear you discuss Akasha's personality, her nihilism, and her need to make meaning because of it. I can't wait until the next one. Um, along those same lines, Leanne Cherry Billups said, Yay, I was so excited to hear you guys and the new podcast. Akasha's plan to squash the patriarchy definitely speaks to today's societal and political climate. I've been wondering how they would choose to handle this in the show, if they would use this as a platform to potentially bring people together. If blood communion is Lestat's words of wisdom for everything he's been through, it's that we all need to get along and have more love and compassion for one another. Sometimes messages like that can fall flat if trying to 
make a larger political statement. I just want to enjoy the stories for what they are, politics aside. But listening to the podcast made me want to go back and reread certain sections that I haven't visited in many years. I just remember my favorite sections were definitely with Jesse. was terribly disappointed in how they portrayed her character yeah. in the movie version. Not sure I can bring myself to rewatch the movie <laughs> for multiple reasons. No shame there, Leanne. Yeah, no we don't shame blame at all. You. So let's talk a little bit about because we did we didn't focus too much on Akasha in the um, our discussion of the novel and honestly on my side at least it was because uh, in this rereading of it she fell a little bit flat I I seem to remember her as a more compelling figure but the arguments to me in this reading of the novel and again I'm mostly just going to talk about the novel because of the movie there's basically no argument right. at all there's there's really nothing from her except for destruction. Uh, and then not even really any explanation for why. Like, what is she trying to do um, other than just take back control of the world, I guess? It's just, it's very, very odd. Um, in the novel, though, when you read her logic as she tries to explain her plan to Lestat, uh, it is so much less complex or logical or compelling an argument than even Thanos in the recent Infinity War movie, and, and you and I discussed the sort of the, the um, connection there and the fact that he's trying to uh, basically evaporate half the universe and she wants to annihilate you know 90% of the male population. But either way, it's so clearly a immature argument, right? This is, this is a, a child's idea of an explanation and an answer to the world's problems. And so for me... There wasn't very much to hang on in my rereadings of it this time. The only thing that was compelling really was the lure of her as a powerful and a, um, a sexual object, an attractive object, and the sheer power that she brings uh, to Lestat. In the same way that he's compelled by being that sort of like angel of death um, alongside this, you know, deity-like figure that's really the only argument i could see is well anytime you're confronted with supreme power it must be sort of compelling to think about joining sides right but if you actually look at the argument itself i just i feel like there's nothing there to hang it on and i don't know if that's uh, maybe immaturity in ann's writing that she couldn't have written a more compelling villain or if it's just that she that that was a very immature idea and a very immature villain and it's portrayed very accurately it it just didn't hit me so hollow as a child when I was reading it myself. You know, well, and I, I don't think, know. What do I you think, think? I think when you look at it from from the perspective of we saw her her as queen, like send troops out to to annihilate a village. You know what I mean? And so she has this this aspect to her that is dangerous and is she's not afraid. And you're, you're also talking about coming from you know a millennia before we all live and exist. And so sometimes the solution to problems back back in the day were a little bit harsh and maybe an overcorrection, if you will. Um, I think part of that is coming from that being her perspective. But I also do think it's a huge nod to um, the matriarchal way that Anne creates culture in her novels as well like matriarchal societies become very important mother figures are are revered this is this seems like a complete a complete a nod to that but like this gone in the wrong direction if that makes sense at all and i think that you know in the time that we live in violence against women is a huge issue um 
And I think that we're finally talking about it. We're talking about it a lot more. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about hashtag me too. And we're talking about, about rape and crime against women and domestic violence and things like that. And, um, and it's, it is, it's like, you can see, I can see Thanos's point, you know, would it be simple to, to wipe out half the population so that we can have, we can have, you know, more 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 goodies, more stuff to spread around amongst us, less poverty, less suffering. Um, but obviously, it's not the correct way to solve a problem. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The one, as far as like taking the storyline and comparing or connecting it to current politics or, or, or real world politics, I do think there is the possibility, Ashley, for a real examination of the view for majority populations or, or, you know, populations who have traditionally been um, in the sort of like mainstream as their, as it compares to their view of outsiders. So I, I think about um, apartheid, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, apartheid South Africa, or even, um, you know, the question of like gender equality in um, Western society. I think a lot of people from like the men's rights activist angle would tell you that oh we can't we can't give in to the feminists because then they're going to put us under their thumb. The view is that the oppressed population could never truly live in equality. They could only dominate just as the dominating population has currently or traditionally done so. And that's just wrong. There is this alternative where we could just live in equality and we could we could live a, in an actual egalitarian society. And I think that the television series, particularly from the wiser, um, you know, more benevolent elder vampires like Maharad and Marius especially, could make that argument very clearly in opposition to Akasha's view, which would be playing out this sort of like feminazi idea that a lot of right-wing people have of, well, what will happen if we ever let women get in charge? Right. That kind of, it's an extremist view. It's just like, you know, it's just like anything else. It's, it's, it's an, obviously she has an extremist take on the patriarchy and that doesn't, isn't necessarily the right way to solve any problem. Obviously we have to, you know, not kill all the men. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. No problem guys. No problem. I got your backs. Let us just strongly say that uh, from this film, I would very much like for you to find us another uh, beautiful, gifted actress who could present Akasha as the uh, chocolate and bronze goddess that uh, mm. that Ashley so accurately described um, that Aaliyah portrayed. That is that is one thing I. It's going to be very interesting to see the actors and actresses that step up into some of these roles, particularly like Akasha, where it could be sort of a short-lived thing. You could imagine she could only really be on uh, maybe even one season or, or you know three quarters of a season even. Uh, so that could be a, a kind of very high-profile name that comes in for a short time and, and gets to play in this TV universe. Uh, that could be very, very exciting as we move into the actual production, um, hopefully ramping up soon over the... Uh, over the next few weeks and months. Um, Ashley, I think that is about it. We ought to wrap it up on this episode. However, as we look forward to what's next 
First of all, of course, we're going to be talking about The Tale of the Body Thief. That's uh, the fourth novel in the Vampire Chronicles series. Uh, That will be our next actual novel discussion. But between here and there, something a a little smaller research project for us. Um, I'm thinking of going and watching a few episodes of uh, Boss, the series starring Kelsey Grammer that Dee Johnson was a part of. And also uh, specifically Mars. I'd like to check out some of Mars as well. Uh, So maybe you and I go do... A little bit of homework on some of those uh, series and uh, episodes that she's had a big role in in the past and uh, get together to discuss some of Dee Johnson's work and what she might bring to bear as the new showrunner on the Vampire Chronicles TV series coming soon to Hulu. I love it. Let's do it. All right, folks, you can always email us, articulatecoven at gmail.com. Find every episode at articulatecoven.com. And don't forget to join the discussion and our community on Facebook. It is growing, just over 100 members now. Thanks. Uh, Search for Articulate Coven on Facebook. Uh, Until the next time that we talk to you, we've been your hosts. I've been Joel. I'm Ashley. And we are the Articulate Coven. Thanks for listening to The Articulate Coven. You can join our community on Facebook by following the links in the show notes or searching for Articulate Coven on Facebook. You can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at articulatecoven.com and share us with your Anne Rice-loving friends. <laughs>